0: But it's curiosity as to where we are, what we the are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful.
1: Welcome to the Curious Humans Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. This is one hell of an episode with honestly one of the most interesting and radical thinkers of our generation. Jamie Wheel is a Renaissance man. He's pretty well known for his work writing Stealing Fire and creating the Flow Genome Project. And as you'll hear in this conversation, the book he's just written is pretty much unlike anything else you'll ever read. I see Jamie as being a bridge between the spiritual and the scientific. He's pioneering studies with John Hopkins and MAPS whilst wading deep into questions of how we evolve and mature as humans. In this conversation, we talk about the meaning crisis, his sexual yoga of becoming experiment, and why we need to create a culture of post-traumatic growth. Truly, this has been one of my favorite conversations to date. So if you enjoyed it, please take a few moments to share on the socials, or even better, go out and buy his book, Recapture the Rapture, and start experimenting with some of the protocols and practices that he shares. Okay, without further ado, I give you this rocket ship of a conversation with the outrageous, the poetic, and the wise human, Mr. Jamie Wheel. Welcome to Curious Humans, Jamie. How are you feeling right now in
0: three words? Quiet, contemplative, and withdrawn. Hmm. Okay,
1: well, I've been reflecting on, or maybe a better way to describe it is is integrating the experience of reading your book. Um, Hmm. And I I genuinely sense that it'll shift the trajectory of my life in in some ways that I'm still unpacking. Um, And by way of introduction, for listeners who aren't familiar with your work, there's an old Hafiz poem that came to mind. Uh, Do you mind if I share it with you? Sure. It goes something like, the small man builds cages for everyone he knows while the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful rowdy prisoners and i have this this image of you being on this quest of sorts to craft these these keys for the rest of us rowdy prisoners and i think in my version of the poem i'd probably replace the sage with this curious trickster who's stared into the upcoming apocalypse and realizes that the the operation jailbreak timeline needs some rocket fuel (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, well dude i'll see i'll see you one hafez quote and i'll raise you another my 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 favorite is is where he says true love my dear is is wrapping your hands around the soft swollen balls of a divine rogue <laughs> elephant and and not having the good fortune to die. <laughs> uh,
1: well, before we dive in the deep end of, of elephant balls, um, I'd love to start with a question that I ask every guest here on the show. And the question is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something you were curious about?
0: I mean, I I suppose so, you know, I mean, as a child, I don't think you have much of a sense of where you end up on bell curves. Um, But I did for sure. um, Yeah, I mean, I think I've always like, even to today, I consume a shit pile of information, Mm -hmm. just as a part of kind of regular metabolism. I think probably the simplest one is is that, you know, growing up in England and Hampshire, there was a hard freeze, which almost never happened. And there was a sort of you know, we had a cattle grate and a gate at the end of our, uh, at the end of our drive and, 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 and the pond or the boggy kind of thing there had frozen over. And I remember really curious to go out on stand on the ice and, of course, promptly cracked, left me stuck in there. Um, and I just remember shouting, shouting and realizing, holy fuck, no one's coming. Like, I, I, either I drown or I get myself out. And I ended up having to leave my wellies sucked into the mud as I somehow made it to the edge. Um, and came back out. And then to finish the story, you know, obviously a little shaken up. It was my first near-death experience. And I come down the drive to see my mother gardening in the front garden. And the first thing she does, and there's no hug, there's no warm welcome. She's like... don't come another step closer. Let me spray you down with the hose. <laughs> so oh, I suppose uh, if I was lying on a couch right now and you asked me that, you, A, you could charge me a thousand bucks and B, I could probably talk for hours about the implications of that event. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is a very British, British upbringing. Um, I can relate. Oh, I say. <laughs> and do you have any, any favorite books or stories or myths growing up that come to mind? And, I ask this because I have a theory that the narrative of these stories that resonate is sometimes
0: connected to our life's purpose. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I made a point because uh, Julie, my partner, who I'm, you know, we, we've been together since university. Her mother was also English, but she was American. And so when we had our kids, you know, we we made a point. I mean, they had all the Ina Blyton books with Pip and all the other kind of, you know, magical forest woodland stuff they had. Mm-hmm the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. They had the Harry Potters in the original English without the American manglings. you know, all, all those kinds of things, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I would say growing up for sure, uh, the, the Enid Blightons, the kind of like that—that the British forest and country was somehow enchanted, mm-hmm. you know? Those were early, early imprints. The, the Greek myths, um, the sort of classics stuff was absolutely in there as well. And then that segued perfectly into, you know, uni and psychedelics and zeppelin and floyd and traffic and the beatles you know because those guys were all of that you know like they they had sort yep. of just yep. electrified that kind of english quintessential uh mythic stuff i mean even in in the new forest where i grew up you know was where prince there was like you know a plaque on a big old tree where prince rufus had been shot hunting or something in the 14th century and no one was quite sure whether it was a game of thrones hit you know, by, by, his, by his own gods or what it was. And Anne Boleyn's house was nearby and Stonehenge was, you know, just down the road. So like being, you know, coming up in a place that was rich with both myth and history, um, I think is for sure deep in my bones.
1: Mm. And I know that from, uh, from there you went on to study historical anthropology. And yeah. I know a lot of listeners will be familiar with your research at the Flow Genome Project and Stealing Fire but I'd love to to ask about the the inception of your latest book, Recapture the Rapture. And specifically, can you remember the moment when you realized that, that this book was in you or when you knew that you couldn't not write it? Like, what was this, this birthing process like?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny that you use that term inception because um, that, you know, the actual way that the book happened, I didn't write. Um, because it would just have been too strange for prime time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it absolutely, like everything I laid out in the book, including like the information layer and including the, that death-rebirth protocol, all of those things mm-hmm. um, actually work. And it is the place that they deliver you to is the place that this book came from mm-hmm. over the span of about seven or eight years via voice messages coming out of those experiences so the entire structure of the book is an elaborate con um, <laughs> because the truth was far too fucking strange to write about with a straight face um so that's great so yeah so we're actually launching an, an, an alternate reality game um starting in this summer um called oh, why wow. w- anon instead of q anon mm, i love and it and it's it's going to be a Gnostic initiatory adventure, which actually gets to tell the story in a far more ripping yarn, but actually much closer to the truth. Hmm.
1: Wow. Wow. Okay. I, I want to get into that, but um, as a as a pre-warning to listeners, um, I'm hoping to go kind of slightly off piece in this conversation. But before we drop in, I'd love to attempt to to butcher a rough outline of the some of the theses of your book. Yeah. And. My take is that it tracks the the arc of human-centered design um, in that you first attempt to deeply listen and map out the problem landscape, what you call Meaning 3.0, followed by prototyping some promising solutions, and then finally building on those insights to explore how those solutions might be open-source, scalable, anti-fragile. And within all of this, the context of asking how might we as a species with a fast approaching expiry date move from this this current mostly tribal centric mode of being to a more global centric con- consciousness and and reframing our own significance in the bigger picture so there's obviously a books worth of stuff to unpack there but does that sound about right and is there any, anything else you'd add
0: before we dive into the weeds yeah i mean just just to ground that for for listeners is <clears throat> you know you're referencing the the design firm ideos model that came out of stanford and um and they created that human-centered design toolkit so anyone around the world can bring it to poverty to inner city issues to education health you name it um Mm -hmm. and and have solutions that people in a community build and develop for themselves by themselves so that seemed you know applied to our current meaning crisis and potential kind of meta-systemic crisis it seemed like you know one more clever pundit one more talking head you know, especially one more middle-aged white guy, you know, holding forth on what ought to be, just seemed really seemed like a crowded lane and not worth clogging further. So it really felt like, hey, what are what's the toolkit that we can all use, and then we can make sure that people are building the things that, that matter the most um, and have the most local local wisdom embedded in them. So yeah, hundred percent
1: great I, I love that and i'm i'm hoping to just kind of touch on section one and then really nerd out on that toolkit in the second section that you you playfully called the alchemists cookbook Ooh. um so again just for for listeners could you briefly summarize what you mean by the meaning crisis 3.0 and and perhaps briefly what are some of the the inherent dangers in these these rapture ideologies that you you speak
0: about yeah, I mean, look, in, this, in the simplest sense, you know, this is just a, a lens, a model. It's not a, a fixed truth. But just you, you could make a case that for almost all of human history, we, went, we were operating on meaning 1.0, which was organized religions. So if you wanted to understand who are we, where did we come from, where are we going, and how, should we, how ought we behave in between, um, organized religion was pretty much the sole go-to source. And that was true really up until the last decade literally like the last decade of human history, um, Mm -hmm. was the first time we saw a rise of people who didn't identify with any specific faith or origin. And I think even in this last year, there's been a new study that showed that, you know, for the first time, um, a majority, over 50%, actually aren't affiliated. Mm -hmm. So we've had a kind of a, you know, and then throw in church scandals and all the things that have led to an erosion of that being a source of kind of singular, epistemic authority of like what's going on and what should we do and then at the same time we've kind of had this overlapping horse race with sort of modern liberalism you know coming out of the you know the the british revolutions the french the the, the french enlightenment you know the american experiment all those things where they were suddenly like hey life liberty and the pursuit of happiness to all men and women regardless of race color or creed just like those kinds of things and private property and civil rights and rule of law and that kind of stuff which attempted to extend you know extend extend inclusion into the you know the possibility of a good life to everybody mm-hmm. but in meaning 1.0 was salvation at the cost of inclusion so if you believed you were saved if you didn't you were damned and modern liberalism offered inclusion at the cost of salvation no one's going to tell you separation of church and state and God is dead and as we've seen both of those really collapse and you could sort of date the I mean obviously late stage capitalism is going to do its own thing it's got its own massive amounts of inertia you know depletion of the commons all of the things you know gaming you know basically rent seeking and and gaming the system we don't actually we've never had a free market in fact I think one of the best things we could possibly do would be to truly free the market. Um, Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, 2008 onwards and the quote unquote K-shaped recovery coming out of Corona um, has just underscored overwhelmingly for many people, even if they weren't paying attention, Mm -hmm. that the game is stacked and not working out. And, you know, Joseph Stieglitz, the, Nobel Prize-winning winning economist, former head of uh, the World Bank, you know, he, he said that you know it's been forty years of this kind of neoliberal experiment. The results are in, and the you know, and the benefits have un- overwhelmingly gone to the one percent. So, like one of the captains yeah. of the ship is saying, "Hey, the ship is sinking, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of in that space." And so, as that the unifying shared reality that we you know, at least for a few decades, kind of oriented around. Um, has been eroding, and rather than everybody just becoming rational secular materialists, you know, like Christopher Hitchens, you know, or even Sam Harris might have wanted, we've we've been getting sucked to the extremes of fundamentalism and nihilism. And so fundamentalism of any stripe, it could be traditional religious, but it could also be ideological, as we're seeing increasingly on both the right and the left. Um, And then nihilism, of just fuck it, burn it all down, like there's nothing worth saving, up to and potentially even including me in my own life, you know, so suicides outpace wars and natural disasters now. So you're like, okay, so we are all hurting, and at the same time that we're experiencing a total erosion of solid handrails, solid leaders, solid or sources of authority, or even kind of considered opinion, um, the rate of exponential change has been going through the roof. And it's not just exponential in one direction, like listening to Ray Kurzweil, you know, and talk about Google and all the wonderful tech stuff. It's, it's exponentially better in that direction, you know, hub, fl- floating cars and, you know, amazing food production and, and, and synthetic meat and you name it, whiz bang, you know. But on the other hand, it's also getting exponentially worse and the Antarctic ice shells and the erosion of the Amazon and wildfires everywhere. So we, at a time when it's crazier than ever, we've suddenly lost both solid handrails going down the stairs in the dark and so it's not surprising that a number of us are coming a cropper and and at the same time becoming uniquely or especially susceptible to rapture ideologies Mm -hmm. and the one of the big you know ah ahas i had in framing up this book and feeling like there was something there to write um was realizing oh wow um this is such a seductive framework because, you know, again, most people think of raptures, they think of traditional fundamentalist religious belief, but it's also, it's just the framework is just, hey, the world is screwed and there's no saving it. And it could be for original sin, it could be ecological crisis and collapse, it could be, you know, be corruption of the powers that be, fill in the blank as to why, but just that it is beyond repair is kind of taken as an article of faith. Mm-hmm. That there is an inflection point coming, and we can pretty much see it from here. So somewhere in the next year, decade, century, whatever it would take, pick your you know preferred time frame. But generally, sooner than later, because otherwise we're going to lose people's interest. Um, there's an inflection point coming, and then three on the other side of the inflection point. Whoever is our tribe, whoever's me and mine, whoever believes the same things, whoever's on this team, gets a golden ticket to the other side, and we're actually better off. Whether that's we upload our consciousness to computers and, and, and we're all like Neo in the Matrix, you know, or whether we're, we're all literally the blessed and the saved while everyone else burns in the pit of hell, you know, or we all get to fuck off to, you know, Bali or Tulum or, or a seasteading colony, you know, in the South Pacific um, and, and live on blockchain proceeds. You know, they, they, are, they are all remarkably similar and they all share the same pathology, which is um, they are 1% solutions. And the one percent could be my fellow billionaires who can afford it. It could be the meritocratic who are beautiful and genetically perfect and score well on their on their SATs. It could be the religiously fervent. It could be you know a purity test of any stripe. Um, but it leaves ninety nine percent of us hosed on a completely abandoned planet that was originally the most unique and viable and gorgeously fascinating and rich home for humanity forever. So as we experience this meaning crisis, right, it becomes, we almost engage in a a sort of almost like a schizophrenic double bind, which is I can't solve this. This is a Gordian knot of epic proportions. And at the same time, somebody is holding up or offering me a potential solution. If, if and only if I buy into that rapture, rapture ideology and, the, and, and, you know, the first rock's free, you know, that's every crack dealer's promise. And the first hit, <laughs> right, of one of those stories is, and you get a golden ticket if you only buy in, believe, or become a loyal soldier to the columns So that was really the implication. It was like, hey, man, the... the the, you know, the crazy, the the extremists, right? It's that Yates quote of the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity, right? We've got the worst filled with passionate intensity having hijacked the microphone of our collective dialogue about what do we do collectively to get out of this mess. And it just feels like somebody needs to give voice back to uh, the rest of us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, man, there's, there's so much there. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to dig into some of this, some of this toolkit and some of the, uh, well, I'll maybe start by saying that listeners might know for a while that I've been like, crowdsourcing perspectives on what I've called a how to human user manual and what that might look like. And what got me so excited reading, reading your book was, You've just gone so deep into the weeds of, of cutting cutting edge academia, and just brought back something of a of a map for producing these altered states. Uh, it's almost like this choose your own adventure pathways to ecstasy. Or I think you quoted Rumi, who said there are a thousand ways to kiss the ground and return home. So for those listeners who haven't read the book, could you could you maybe start by briefly outlining some of these? Uh, I think you had five big biological drivers. Um, that you believe have the potential to reverse engineer this this enlightenment and this this awakening.
0: Well, and let's let's even just kind of back off on enlightenment and awakening because those two can can very easily kind of get smuggled yep. into a rapture ideology of like Loaded if terms. I can get there, sure, sure, sure. there's a happily ever after and I never have to deal with any more of the shit. And and Absolutely. a central thesis of this book is there's no fucking getting off the hook of mm. the human experience, and in fact in any philosophy or ideology or movement that promises or pretends that will end up irreducibly pathological over time. Mm -hmm. So much more, to your point, it's much more like a user, like humans a user manual. In fact, that's going to be the third book in this trilogy. Um, So I've already kind of got that ready to go, which is basically it will be a roadmap for living into quantum consciousness and culture, but not in a bullshit quantum way and actually Mm -hmm. deeply rooted and rigorous way. Mm -hmm. Um, So my sense was is that you know, back to that design thinking approach that, okay, if you want to architect kind of a framework like blockchain or like Linux, the open source software that, you know, much of Silicon Valley runs on, um, you want it to be open source, scalable and, and anti-fragiles, meaning that anybody can use it, it's not proprietary, it's, not too, you know, it, it's, um, it's scalable, so it means it's cheap or it's free. And it's anti-fragile, meaning it doesn't require perfect conditions to work. And in fact, as things get harder, it can get stronger. Right? So those were the kind of um, the prerequisites for what we were thinking. And once you've established that, that you want it to be available to everyone everywhere and be, and be robust, mm-hmm. then you kind of, you know, a lot of fancy waistcoats stuff gets taken right off the table. Right. If if you were, if if you could be in an fMRI machine or a transcranial magnetic stimulation device that costs ten million bucks and there's you know there's a few hundred scattered around the planet and it costs ten thousand dollars a session but it delivers you to God consciousness and turns you into Gandhi, well that's neat, you know, but it doesn't scale. Right. So so that's a a a roundabout way of coming back to you. Well, if you want the most powerful tools we have available that everyone has access to, you're going to look inside our bodies and brains and you're going to look for things that evolution strongly, strongly, strongly coded for, because those are going to have the, the deepest reinforcements and drivers behind them. So breathing, right? If, you know, if we don't breathe, we die. And so there is a reason that Wim Hof and holotropic breathwork and all of these things have both become so trendy, but also they are so effective and they work. Mm-hmm. is because, you know, shifting our neurochemistry based on our respiration, right, has profound effects on consciousness, whether that's to ramp us up and make us vitalized and ready for something hard and fast, whether it's to calm us down and downregulate our nervous system and let us dissipate stress, or whether it's to transcend and step out of regular consciousness and experience different EEG states and different hormonal profiles. So breathing is one Uh, hot on those heels right after, you know, food, water, and breathing is sex and procreation. And that's such a wildly loaded one. And we're so immature in our relationship to it. And we're Mm -hmm. so typically unclear as to what is science, fact, ethics, morality versus taboo and social encoding. Um, We have a decidedly Dysfunctional and ambiguous relationship with sexuality, but if you just look at it, you're like, oh my god! For millions of years, hominids figured out how to make more hominids with no instruction manual, and it's not the simplest logistical thing we ever pull off, you know. So, so you're like, wow! Not only is are we strongly incented to find ways to put our bits together, but the actual experience itself dumps the 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 absolute kitchen sink of pleasure, reward, memory enhancing, pair bonding, all you know, stress relieving, pain relieving neurochemistry into our system, and then stamps it and says, this was fucking awesome. Make sure you do this again as soon as possible. Yeah. So you're like, okay, so on the one hand, our sexual impulses unbeknownst to us are responsible for a tragic and shattering amount of our suffering as people. You know, every, everything from childhood abuse and sexual slavery, to prostitution, to abortions, to miscarriages, to infidelities, to divorces, to just seeking and yearning and being thwarted, you name it, right? There is, I would suggest somewhere between 50 to, to 75%, you know, of human suffering um, has a sexual component to it. Wow. And, and, and you just, and, you're that, and that is enough to make you weep, but it's also profoundly empowering where you're like, Whoa. What if we could untie those puppet strings mm-hmm. of evolution, and what if we could actually redeploy those very same impulses and drivers, those very same nervous system protocols or, or habits or practices, and use them to discharge trauma, use them to heighten and replenish and, 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 and in, you know, enchant relationships, and also gain access to peak states of inspiration and information. And so, you know, and, and uh, Rick Doblin is a, is a friend and mentor, the founder of MAPS, uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And he had shared with me a couple of years ago that the profound work, in fact, the New York Times just published their phase three trials this week. Um, and it's having, you know, the, what they are doing with the pharmacological compound MDMA with veterans and other sufferers of PTSD is having profound, profound effects on people who have been resistant to all other drugs, resistant to talk therapy, and literally hanging on by their fingertips mm-hmm. of trying to manage PTSD through their life, right? And the results are really inspiring and heartwarming. But he said something that really caught my attention was he's like, look, the, the closest analog we've found to this MDMA therapeutic state is post-orgasmic. High vasopressin, high prolactin, high oxytocin, high serotonin. And You're like, holy shit. Well, you want to talk about open source and scalable, Mm-hmm. Right, that becomes a profound place for inquiry. And, you know, there are some scientists and former Kinsey Institute researchers and others that are really bravely advancing that research. And their findings are, f- you know, phenomenally interesting and, and supportive of that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, so those are two. And we can happily unpack the other three if you'd like, or we can go anywhere, anywhere you're interested.
1: Yeah. So I, I'd yeah. love to. Um... I'd love to go into the, the stacking these techniques for ecstasy. And I, I think you called it the sexual yoga of becoming experiment, which was essentially this study inviting 12 consenting couples to combine these, these basically like Lego blocks and you were measuring their sense of ecstasy, catharsis and communitas. And so I'd, I'd love to hear how did this study come about and perhaps
0: if you were to run it again, what might you do differently? Yeah, well I mean it, it basically came about of like, holy shit, I think this is a thing. And but we won't know if it's if it's true or broadly useful unless we have some folks try it and see what comes of it. And one of the things that was the first hurdle was like, Well, wait, if you're thinking of stacking or combining a bunch of small things to add up to a big thing, like hopefully, you know, healing, inspiration, and connection, um, that's a son of a bitch to study in a double blind placebo controlled format. Right. Because, because if you're just, if you're just doing one thing at a time, none of them, like they might only each contribute 15% say, and you know, we know that like placebo, a placebos can account for anywhere from sort of 25 to 40% of efficacy of a thing. And that's actually, so a sugar pill could actually swamp and hide any of your other effects. And weirdly, for reasons I, I didn't find an answer to, but weirdly, the placebo effect has been increasing over the last decade. Really? So it's like, yeah, it's not a fixed thing even. So so you're like, okay, so what's what's the opposite of isolating single factors, right, in a double blind test? And the answer is sort of the kitchen sink method, which you, which you actually put together all the things that have an evidence-based reason for, you know, like a mechanism of action that's plausible. You're like, I think that should work, right? Let's see if it does. Put them together in a sequence, see if you get the actual desired result you're looking for, right? Is it a mind-blowing, utterly novel, super dip, deep and rich experience? Check. And then you can work backwards. You'd be like, okay, now let's see what's essential versus you know, what we're have-to-haves versus nice to haves to get us to that actual end result that we found deeply subjectively valuable. So you can you can then kind of really do a split test and and, and so much. In the new age space, and the personal growth space, we're seeing this absolutely with breathwork and sound healing protocols, right? There's all sorts of swag that gets smuggled into those. And -hmm. it looks like mysticism. It looks like wisdom. You know, it's often got some half-assed lineage, you know, duct tape on it. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that, you know, 70% of it is absolutely Mm arm-waving. And only 30% does anything that's meaningful and repeatable. So we were really interested in sort of, stripping out mythologies and keeping technologies you know like not like never mind the stories that things come wrapped in but like just let's just focus on the stuff that works and the final piece was um so how do you go how do you measure this and so what we did was we picked two established academically validated metrics for each of the categories so we had uh, peak experiences or peak states and we used Johns Hopkins um, mystical experience questionnaire that's a 30-question test, and that's the one that Roland Griffiths developed originally kind of kicking off a lot of Hopkins psychedelic research. So that's one of the gold standards in the space for did you or didn't you have a quote-unquote mystical experience. And then we also used Susan Jackson's flow scale inventory. So like, hey, that's, that's a shoot the moon mystical experience, did you or didn't you? Those generally come along fairly infrequently, you know, but a flow state like, hey, does this practice actually leave you? in a place of ease, effortlessness, lack of self-consciousness, natural, you know, natural flow. How, how did that happen? So those were our two to say, hey, did this does this 12-week study, did it increase any of the inspiration category? And then the same for healing, because obviously main I mean everybody's these days feels sort of like we're suffering chronic micro PTSD almost all the time. Mm-hmm. And you know, for most of us there's people carrying meaningful burdens of macro PTSD, like true adverse life events we haven't fully bounced back from. Mm -hmm. And so the healing part seemed really important. And so we did the self-assessed PCL5 trauma test, which is, I mean, this is deep nerdery, but if there's anybody who's listening who's either in research professions or academia or curious on the citizen science front, um, the CAPS trauma test is kind of the gold standard, but that one is administered by a, a psychiatrist or psychologist. Mm-hmm. So the PCL5 is kind of a at-home version of that but it has you know the similar kind of correlations and then also and so that's for like how how am i today in relationship to past trauma that i've experienced right mm-hmm. but we also wanted to check physiologically like how stressed are people's nervous systems are they getting are they defragging because of having these peak experiences on a regular structured basis is that helping is their day-to-day level set improving and so we had them do um, basically overnight heart rate variability scores Mm -hmm. as well so the final piece was communitas or connection and since this was because this was a it included sexuality and intimacy and therefore we just opted to keep it clean and simple with consenting long term committed couples the other question was well is this helping your relationship are you able to go from I'm a banged up, broken, isolated individual to we're a connected duo or diet. Do I feel closer to the person I'm committing to? And so we had that was the uh, PANAS scale, the positive and negative affect scale. So literally, how do I just feel about life and my partner? And then the IOS, the intimacy of self and other scale. And that's literally a series of circles, like two circles, don't touch So two circles that just touch and then varying degrees of then overlap of like, until mm-hmm. we're like, we're one, one entity. And, and then, and then we ran the 12 weeks of basically structured sexuality, body work, breath work, music, and elective introduction of substances. And folks then got to kind of build their own adventure. This we kind of had mild, medium and spicy options for how would you, tweak the varying neurophysiological triggers. Like how do you create more vagal nerve tone? How do you boost your endocannabinoid system? How do you shift your brainwave states? How do you do all these things? And then it was kind of up to consenting partners to explore their own journey. And the results were, um, they outperformed talk therapy. They outperformed even just straight up psychedelically assisted therapy. Um, and they became some of the most, um, meaningful findings for a pretty much do-it-yourself set of protocols um, that we've come across. And now that we've got those six metrics, those six tests that I just unpacked, the beautiful thing is, is that not only could people attempt to literally recreate that same exact protocol or set of studies, but they could also do any others. They could say, hey, I think that circus juggling and stand-up comedy is actually a beautiful way. <laughs> to get us out of ourselves and get us laughing and get us loose and get you know and healing it could be journaling and and and, and you know um, jungian art projects like you can do anything you want and say hey if we believe and i mean I, I make the case in the book and this comes from harvard divinity schools original assessment but if you believe that essential nutrients for humans both individually and collectively are regular reliable access to healing inspiration and connection then we should be conducting a thousand experiments mm-hmm. that we can validate, that can, crop, that can talk across these experiments to each other, and say, "Hey, what do we think? What are some of the things we can dust off that culture has already given us, and what are some new things we can innovate that are maybe more, even more appropriate for our time and place?" And can we just get going? You know, we don't need more plastic, we don't need more widgets, and we don't need more apps replacing our mothers you know, laundry and grocery delivery and dating and pet care, right? What we need is like entrepreneurship unlocked to solve, you know, the human condition and our collective predicament. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I love the idea of um, having these kind of open source ways of measuring as well. I'm, I'm in the breathwork world myself and I, I'm a trained holotropic breathwork practitioner and there's just really very little like genuine science out there and or at least rigorous studies and i, I think you're collaborating on one with john hopkins or yeah and, st- and actually and st-
0: stan groff is actually uh, an emeritus advisor which is incredible to the project and matt johnson is the um lead researcher
1: mm. yeah that's that's so fantastic and i'd love to contribute in, in some small way um even kind of my own practice and and running things down the line um but Shifting shifting gears slightly, you kind of talked about um trauma a fair bit there. And mm-hmm. this is what I'm kind of curious to dive into with you. Um I, I wrote down this this quote that you you said, when we have cultural processes that hold us up while we suffer, we can transform that suffering into something profound. And you quoted Len Cohen's anthem, There's a crack, a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. And for me, it was it was that exact line that Perfectly encapsulated my own process of moving through grief following the the suicide of my fiance three and a half years ago, mm. and you called it dancing with the tragic and the magic. And my experience of this has been that in the in like the very depths of the tragic lies a portal to the most sublime of the magic. Uh, there's a there's a roomy line he says the cure for the pain is in the pain. And so, I guess I'm wondering out loud here if if the appropriate model for these states is maybe not a spectrum but a circle. And, and what do you think about this idea that that it's in the deepest depths of our wounding and our grief that there is almost this trapdoor to the the exquisitely profound sacred experiences, and that maybe our unique contributions to this infinite game um, emerge from having the courage
0: to to feel into this wounding. I mean, yeah. You know, 100 percent. Right. I mean, I I make that point at the end, I think in the last chapter, which is just to say, hey, this is a flywheel Mm -hmm. like this. Our relationship to peak states isn't that it's a sort of above the fluffy clouds, those unicorns and rainbows and free donuts and Wi-Fi for everyone. Mm-hmm. right It's like no, no no, you, fight, you you get up above the clouds and it's spectacular. <clears throat> and you can see your, your travails down in the valley below with clear eyes and fresh perspective and the views uh, go on for days, but you can't live up there. Mm-hmm. And we have to come back home and we come back home mm-hmm. invariably with more insight and perspective on our wounds and broken spots. And you can either take you know take the light, take the inspiration and use that to begin mending, begin atoning and begin aligning. So that my life in the valley looks looks and resembles more like my stand on the summit. you know. Um, or, right, and this is the beautiful thing about healing, inspiration, and connection is you can come in, like life will drag you in through any one of those doors. Mm-hmm. Once you're into the cycle, they almost all show up, right? So if you think of like Alcoholics Anonymous, right, and just run that model, you're like, okay, what's that one? Well, that one's coming in through healing, through catharsis. I'm broken down, I hit my proverbial rock bottom. I then find a meeting and I start attending those meetings. So now I move into connection and communitas, right? Mm-hmm. And typically I realize, oh, all of my shame, all of my stories, all of my self-defeating mental patterns and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, they're not just mine. Everybody here's had some. In fact, shit, man, hot. these people have had it way worse than I did. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And then typically I found my people, I'm not alone, and then they will have an experience that in a I think they even call it like the pink light or something, which is like I've been sober for a month. I'm being supported. I allow myself hope. I found my people. Right. And then they have a peak experience. Right. And so they go around it that way. Someone else could have an accidental peak experience. They could have a breathwork workshop. They could go to Burning Man. They could go to Peru, whatever. They have some big ass breakthrough. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this now acquaints me to the wound of the world or to the wound mm-hmm. of my community or whatever. Now I feel compelled to come back down. You know, or you know, and this is and the thing about these these patterns is they are usable and weaponizable by anybody. Yeah. So, like alt right Aryan Nation folks and ISIS both recruit into this. They'll say, "Hey, you're a lonely misfit toy." Typically, a man, twenty to forty, you feel like you've lost status. You don't matter. No one counts, and the cards are stacked against you come in and find your brothers. And it can be on a message board, on Telegram or, you know, or Parler or whatever it would be. You're found and you're not a misfit anymore. And in fact, right, we, and here's your pain. We're going to actually pick the scabs of your pain and we're actually going to poke and prod them until you really, really feel them. But we're going to mm-hmm. promise you there's someone to blame. And then whether it's QAnon or ISIS, you know, in suicide vest or whatever it will be, or storming a capital, and then there's going to be a day where you let, where we lay it all on the line for goodness truth and beauty and you know and the american way or the nordic way or whatever way is our way and then you go up in a blaze of glory to be forever honored right as a hero of our tribe and you're like oh shit <laughs> so so the point here is that is that a lot of well-intentioned secular progressive liberals won't go near meaning with a two, with a 10-foot pole Mm-hmm. Right? They're, so, they're so dedicated to pluralism that we just leave that, the meaning space wide open for bad actors. And the bad actors have been in there for decades working the same strategies. Right. So, so, you know, you could communitas could be, and a healthy communitas could be, I'm on a sports team and we make our way to the championships. Right. And, and we have to go through our blocks and our hard come and our setbacks and our healing together to trust each other and get away from rivalries and whatever. And then bam, we have the cup in our hand and it's the best thing we've ever done. Right. So there are secular versions. There are, there are positive and negative social versions. There are spiritual versions, martial versions, you name it. There are, but, but the whole thing of Healing, inspiration, and connection, we're never ever done that. And if you think you're done, and anybody who thinks they're standing on top of the hill, you know, wait, just wait until you have to bury your parents and raise your children. Just wait until health or tragedy or or set or financial setback or anything or global setbacks like we've had this year. Just wait. Right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. life will come along and iron you out. I don't think anybody gets to the end of the human... Well, I mean, I I think it's fair to say, right? I mean, no one gets out of here alive. So (laughs) even if you kicked ass and took names and never experienced a setback in your actual biographic life, you still have to meet your maker. You still have to face the screaming abyss at the end. And most of us, almost all of us, experience a shit ton more random Mm -hmm. tragedy and setback along the way to soften us up. So that, that Martin Practel quote, I think it was close to the one that you you landed on, but where he, he has that beautiful phrase um, where he says, he's actually from Lago Atilan. I don't know where you went to in uh, Guatemala. Yeah, we, we, we were there, yeah. Okay, yeah. well, fuck, you should just dive deep if you haven't already into Martin Practel's stuff. Um, mm-hmm. He was an initiated Mayan elder of the village that was then wiped out in the 80s death squads. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has a beautiful line among many of his where he says, grief is praise it is the way love honors what it misses Mm. Mm. so that's your trap door you know like that's your way back to picking ourselves up off the the floor when we are leveled by the seeming inexplicable cruelty and randomness of life
1: Mm. wow i I I love that. That's that's so beautiful. And it it kind of reminds me of your inquiry of uh, of of like, how do we open our hearts to the wounds of the world? And I I think um, there was a phrase that you you shared on another podcast that was grieve globally, thrive locally. And as I was reading your description of uh, you talk about the Tibetan practice of, of Tonglen meditation. Yeah. And I thought at the time, like what we kind of need is, is like a rocket fueled, secular Tonglen practice. Um, and, and I think we need to like harness the courage to sink into, into these wounds and transition into what Zach Stein calls this, this insolvent and this post tragic world. And to think, think out loud here a little bit. Um, and this might risk getting a bit abstract, but I, I sometimes wonder if our generations of, you know, accumulated, uh, cultural sexual trauma and heartbreakingly devastating wounding to the planet's ecosystem. It, it's almost like we've or the world has specifically cultivated the conditions for humankind to go through a like a species-wide lament that could alchemize and and catapult our consciousness into that flywheel into the the post-tragic insolvent and and give birth to a a collective homegrown human on, on the other side Um, so there's, there's a lot there, but maybe you could speak to what, like, what would a supercharged Tonglen 2.0 practice look like? And, and how can we, or how might we forge the, the collective courageous curiosity to dive headfirst into these wounds that we're, we're very good at habitually avoiding.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's many, many branches in that inquiry, Mm. um, You know, I I think the the simplest is, you know, if we go back to what we know, right? I mean, we can obviously, we can sort of swap yarns all day long. And the one that sounds nicest is the ones that people will remember and that kind of thing. But if we kind of stay as close to what we also know (coughs) in the realms of science and research, right, is that managing trauma, like metabolite, digesting our grief, which is another of Martin Prechtel's phrases, right? He says, we're choking on our undigested grief. And so how do we better digest our grief? Well, the simple answer is like talking to somebody about it tends not to help much. If it's really acute, if it's really a hard, hard hit, yep. um, and neither just drugging ourselves into oblivion uh, with you know SSRIs and anti-anxiety and antidepressants and that kind of stuff, um, which is why MAPS's research with the MDMA and PTSD has been so meaningful, which is fundamentally like... I can't get off the problem to solve the problem if the problem has me, right? If I'm completely jacked up, armored in a defensive fight-flight response, I'm gonna be crap at self-rescue. But where the magic happens in the MDMA assisted therapy is, oh, wow, you've just given me this tablet. This tablet has increased my serotonin, oxytocin, prolactin, vasopressin. I feel safe. I feel love my vigilance can, can you know unwind a bit and i have a little bit of distance from the story that used to have me like a tormentor and now i can have it i can look at it i can talk about it and i can even release i can speak to it i can name it i can face it in ways that i couldn't physically literally could not you know an hour before or a day before and so that's that that's the whole premise of that alchemist cookbook which is we actually you know if We ignore the sacred, then the mundane crushes us, right? There's no way to manage the human experience and not feel like it is a absolutely pointless rat race slash hamster wheel Hmm. to death with a bunch of ugly hits and injustices in between, unless... You know, unless we catch the sunrises, unless we see shooting stars, unless we fall in love, unless we are blown away by creating or observing great art. You know, it's those things that that give us our reasons for keeping on through the grind. And so my sense of how do we get to Tonglen? I mean, A is practice, right? A, just the notion that we're not trying to bypass or sidestep or sanitize the mud. You know, much more like the Buddhist. You know, there's the lotus flower growing out of the stinky, shitty ass swamp. Is is important because I think a lot in the pop psych, new agey, you know, personal growth spaces, and you know, and for that matter, in a lot of evangelical Christianity in 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 the U.S. at least, Mm -hmm. is all about just bypassing. It's all about just skipping it and never going back to it. You know, versus hey, can we prime our bodies and brains so that we have feelings of vitality? and enoughness at a minimum, all the way to the building blocks of love, right? Literally the the chem, the neurochemistry that correlates with love. And then can we practice learning to metabolize our suffering and go, oh, I feel this is grief is praise. It's the way uh, this is love. How do I, how do I meditate viscerally on the grief I feel to turn into, I love the opposite. I love the, I I am yearning for. So like our son, right, bless his heart, is a sweet, thoughtful, young student. And he's trying to make sense of his generation. He's trying to make, you know, Greta Thunberg style, right? Make sense of the state of the world and where's a way forward. And I'm like, Mm buddy, look, can we just pause for a moment? And can I just acknowledge that you care deeply about a beautiful, just world that can work and make sense? Because he's, you know, he's hard indexed right now on looking for truth and being bitterly disappointed everywhere he looks. But it's like, buddy, your your commitment to truth is profoundly beautiful. And can we just sit in that first? And then with Tonglen, you know, the, the whole the magic of it is once you can do that for yourself, then extend it to your family, to your community, to your country, to the world, and then even, you know, depending on how Buddhist and bodhisattva you want to go to, you know, all sentient beings everywhere, every when. And can we actually just hold that? Like, hey man, I'm a primate with a badass neocortex connected to spinal, it's connected to a spinal column, opposable thumbs, and erogenous zones, like fucking rad. <laughs> you know? And and we are simultaneously blessed and burdened with this overwhelming God consciousness like we literally have built the Large Hadron Collider, and we can simulate the moment of inception of our universe, and we can map and model its extinction, and everything in between, right? We've. Ne- I mean, no human has been burdened or blessed with that level of consciousness. And at the same time, oh, hey, by the way, the super technologically advanced and sophisticated neoliberal Western market, you know uh, society that made telescopes and mag- and, ma- and magnifying glass and microscopes and large hadron colliders possible might have overshot the mark, and we might have too many of us on this planet. We might have overengineered our own fucking extinction. Oh, and welcome to your generation. You know that's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a lot, and so expanding our capacity to hold the agony and the ecstasy, yeah, right, feels like a pretty essential skill set right now yeah yeah beautifully put um
1: so there's there's one like i guess many but one big curiosity that emerged from from reading your book and listening to you speak is beyond kind of sharing and talking about this work um and you mentioned this briefly in the beginning with the with the worldwide gain that i'd love to hear more about but how else are you imagining that Um, both you and readers in the community might help to plant seeds to cultivate the conditions for this 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 global tribe to emerge and and maybe for a bit more context there's there's a quote that I've always loved from a a Papua New New Guinea tribe and they say that knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the muscle
0: Hmm.
1: and this feels like to me at least like like a like a really big roadblock that a lot of the game b intellectuals will, will kind of read this book they'll be like yeah this is fascinating and it's backed by science but maybe lack the structure and the community for embarking on the journey of actually exploring these open source recipes and prefer to say mostly in the in the kind of safe operating of numb and distract modes so how are you how are you thinking about this and and maybe just for fun like if if we were to fast forward five years um and create some someone has taken these principles these principles these recipes they've created a a homegrown human academy what might this look like and and how do you think about creating structure and curriculum around
0: this open source toolkit yeah well i mean like my background is just like as a mountain guide and as and, and as an educator um and my wife julie is a montessori teacher we built a montessori school for our kids we've guided groups in the mountains and the canyons and the oceans you know all around the world from Nepal and Tibet to you know California and Colorado so like dynamic learning is something that's where we come from Um, and any of the more esoteric uh, insights inquiries uh, and research actually came from you know my academic career in historical anthropology and then also just like What on earth are these experiences we're having and and who else has had them and where do they come from and and like how do how do you make sense of them Mm -hmm. um so in that respect i mean everything we do with the flow genome project including our adventure trainings and courses including our summer camps we're doing one in aspen this summer um, are all designed around being training camps for homegrown humans Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the key things that you know i lay this out in that culty cult checklist of like how to spot a a dysfunctional community based on ecstatic and cathartic experiences. Um, You know, one of the things that we always do is we leave, we leave the chair empty for Elijah or Elvis, (laughs) you know, like no one's claiming the throne (laughs) and very few people. It seems these days are actually willing to do that. Hmm. They almost always set up cults of personality. And even if there's some, oh, shucks, humble bragging um, up front, they absolutely accept the bestowed gold of their adoring fans. And, so as a result, for instance, you know, like while we will talk about the neuroscience, the phenomenology, the integration of mystical states, of, of, of even psychedelic states and things like that, um, we, tr- we try and have a, a sort of a pedagogical commitment. It's a little bit like how doctors are supposed to be barred from treating their own family right because they're not supposed to be objective we we leave that last 10% of like you guys go connect the dots now you know run off find your friends find your tribe find find your shaman do whatever you're choosing to do or not have at it and then come back and we will proceed to train the shit out of you but we can't do both we can't be in such a position of impressionable authority right as the administer of the sacred and then also train people so one of it is to pr- make sure that people have separation of church and state. And the other is also that we have, there is an, at least I experience, and I, and I think for sure we, we as an organization do, which is there's an inevitable ethical responsibility if you're the one that opens someone's eyes. And they are effectively on your rope. I mean, back to our guiding background, right? They're on your mm-hmm. rope until you get the bounded level terrain. And the bottom line is we have our friends, we have our kids, we have each other, we're not looking for a bunch of hangers-on that we're ethically committed to getting back down to safe ground if they shit the bed in steep-angle terrain, right? So the idea is, like, we do not want it for you. We do not want it for us, right? But we will be here the moment you come back holding as clear a signal as we can. So that's how we are attempting it. And I'll, I can tell you right now, it's a crap business model, right? You're way better <laughs> off. You're way better off right. um, juicing people to the gills and having you know, upsell booths in the back to, to snag everybody when they can't think straight and, and you're just helping them reach into their pocket for their credit card. But um, we explicitly don't. We, kind of, we deliberately unplug and we say, okay, you know, we bow out. We bow out of the dojo. We close the circle. And then we're like, go home, integrate. We'll still be here if and when you're ready to take the next step. So as far as what it might look like broadly, as far as other people engaging this in an open source way, I think the, and I'm not dodging a a clearer, more structured answer, but I think the beauty is um, we don't know yet. And a sign of its success would be is that you have wildly diverse experiments happening. As a result, and in some respects, right, I mean, the notion, like if if we're holding out anything as as a point of this book, it's to say, hey, we're all born into this pre-tragic life. We all get smack dab into the tragedy of it, and most of us get stuck there. If you can self-initiate yourself and others, the people you love and care about, into fully embracing the post-tragic, then finally we get to show up as homegrown humans. Right? We actually get to show up fully present, fully engaged, and fully committed to these lives of ours and to everyone else's we touch. And that's what we need. We need a ship pile more homegrown humans. So an exi- so it might be that someone reads this book and it's like, oh no, fuck yeah. Like, like that's my people. That's my tribe. That's what we're doing. And, and like one of our friends she went through a crazy traumatic life, like on the street at 15, selling methamphetamine, being a high-end escort in Las Vegas, turning into an amazing adventure athlete and rock climber and sponsored athlete. And now she is doing programs in war-torn areas in Asia, Hmm. right, Um, for for young girls and giving them the empowerment of climbing. And another buddy of ours grew up, like, you know, grew up fly fishing in Colorado, created an amazing lodge off Honduras, has been doing mangrove restoration, is providing fly guiding jobs for the guys who used to have to run drugs for the cartel, right? And is creating a river conservation company, all based around his passion for fly fishing, but now connecting indigenous communities, war-torn communities, you know, naco adult communities on you know, in Honduras, all based on that. So, like, there's a million ways to skin this cat. And it doesn't all require everybody wearing like, you know, cotton, muslin and mala beads, you know, and and, and spending a lot of time talking about their fucking process. If anything, I would say Mm. we need to get the fuck over ourselves. And, Mm. And at the same time that there's unquestionably tons of trauma these days and books like Bessel van der Kolk's Body Keeps the Score. And, you know, basically trauma has become a catchword. And so I would also lovingly say the notion of like 80-20 woke to broke, which is like, we are also fetishizing trauma. And, we, and, and I think ultimately, you know, the idea that like, hey, Princeton is not a safe space, or I feel triggered by that thing that professor said one sentence they took wildly out of context. You're like, shut the fuck up and grow the fuck up. Like there is so much authentic, irreducible tragedy in the world, and whether you you, you want to talk about racial safety, like check out the Uyghurs—is anybody caring about genocide or the Tibetans, you know, or, or or the Rohingya? Like 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 you want to talk about not being racially safe? There are degrees, and I promise you, it's not on liberal liberal college campuses that are the apex of oppression right now. I promise. So so that sense of that I think it's really critical that we all embrace everybody's banged up and broken. The world is unjust and unfair. But by and large, if you're reading this or thinking this or tweeting this on a fucking thousand dollar smartphone, you won the human lottery already, no matter how much grievance you think you've stockpiled. (laughs) Right? So let's get over ourselves and let's not dishonor our brothers and sisters that are struggling under legitimate trauma. And let's actually be like 80-20 work to broke, this notion of like, I'm not ever going to be perfect and I'm not ever going to attain a state, whether it's spiritual or it's socio-political, right? Whether it's baby Jesus giving it to me or it's a responsive federal government, right? I'm never going to get to perfectly safe, perfectly awake, p- perfectly enough. But what I can do is I can make use of the first 20% of my access to peak states, right to remember what i've forgotten to reclaim my truest purpose and to patch the the biggest most gaping holes in the vessel of myself and and if all i've got left is a bailing bucket and every hour or two i need to dump it out <laughs> but otherwise i'm okay like then and, and and instead of then pursuing the remaining 80% of my personal growth, my sensation seeking, et cetera, trying to chase that last 20% of my imagined perfectibility, which is a really, you know, asymmetrically inefficient thing to do, right? If I got my 80% hit for my first 20% of investment, take it, honor it, cherish it, and then turn around and instead of chasing the long tail, right? Turn around, like trying to get my head above the clouds, turn around and help other people who are trying to get their head above water. Like we just need more and more of that, which is like, hey, you know, the good news is you're in the matrix and you can learn Kung Fu and you can fly like a fucking superhero. The bad news is you're jacked into fucking Vatagoo and the machines are coming tomorrow night, right? <laughs> so we're going to unjack you. We're going to give you a hug. We're going to give you a high five, right? And give you a weekend at the spa. And on Monday morning, report for duty. You're needed. Hmm. <laughs> Uh,
1: um, I'd, I'd love to circle back. Uh, you mentioned that, that you know th- there will hopefully be hundreds, maybe thousands of different experiments of what this will look like. You briefly mentioned in the beginning that you're you're thinking of launching a kind of like a, a world game. Is that inspired by Bucky Fuller's kind of world game? Is that what you're imagining? Is there any any more that you can share
0: about um. what you're
1: what you're envisioning?
0: Yeah, and actually, just tell, tell me more about Buck. Like we actually had Amanda Ravenhill on our book launch, who's the executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute. But uh, what was what was the world game that he's talked about?
1: Uh, I believe that he created something called the World Game, which is where a bunch of different uh, political leaders could could imagine different scenarios of how uh, world events could um, could transpire, and so um, it was his way of hypothesizing and predicting into the future by allowing many different actors to play different roles of this of this game um, mm. i believe it was
0: fairly popular at the time oh nice neat well i'd love to i'd love to go back and uh and, and research that a bit too because that sounds that sounds super fun yeah mm. so i mean for me um i mean a this book as, as i'm sure you probably <laughs> noticed along the way has kind kind of takes narrative nonfiction and it's you know strains it to its snapping point. Like mm-hmm. it's probably the most outrageous book ever published by a mainstream press. Mm. You know, because it's basically like time traveling, sex magic meets galactic Christ consciousness to save the world just in time, or out of it if you really need to throw that card at the last minute. Mm-hmm. Right? So like it's ridiculous. You know? Um a buddy of mine playfully said he said like if, if Alistair Crowley had hired Malcolm Gladwell as his ghostwriter you know, this is the book they would have written. <laughs> right? Because this all sounds imminently fucking reasonable and there's footnotes and everything, you know? So so, um, so, my sense was, is that A, QAnon, like what the fuck, right? Like the idea that such a weak-sauce poetic narrative has captured the weak minds of so many people is both gobsmacking and, and problematic. But some of our dear friends in the kind of X-Risk Game B-ish spaces um, decided that you know they were going to be engaging and trying to improve the world's information ecology, right? Like like trying to in, in improve, basically, you know, make make better sense of what's going on, and therefore people will become more sensible. Yeah, yep, this, this is like Daniel Daniel Schmachtenberger's uh, consiliency Project, correct? Yeah, yeah. And 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 while I love them and, and actively support them, I think it's structurally flawed. Like, and here's the other thing, right? The notion of open source experiments, what I've found is that there's people I have come to love, respect, and deeply admire who are choosing to put stakes in the ground in very different places than where I am and neither of, none of us would sign up for each other's <laughs> objects. right? Because each of us is like, yeah, no, I think you're missing yeah, this thing. And I, think it's a, I think it's a critical thing, And but here's what's mm-hmm. beautiful. And I, I mean, I, I wrote a collective letter that included Daniel, included Zach Stein on it, which was like, hey guys, I actually think we're onto something. I think that's actually a feature, not a bug of this open source approach. And I think it's actually perfect and beautiful that like, I'll see your banner on the battlefield and I might not have actually lined up behind you to fight that particular front, but on the, but but at the end of the day, I am absolutely rooting to see your banner still flying. Right? I want you. I want you to. I want it to work. I mean, even Elon Musk. That you know, like I, I offer a not a critique of Elon, um, but actually a critique of just is Mars, you know, versus fixing Earth the best
1: move, right?
0: And and so at the same time that I can actually level, you know, I think of not, not particularly original critique about that. It's all fairly straightforward. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also rooting for him to, for him to win. Mm -hmm. Like I want all the options that are, that are conceived with best intentions to work because we literally don't know which ones are going to save the day. And so the notion of you know, trying to fix the, the, a world that is getting hijacked by rapture ideologies by improving our Wikipedia pages, I don't think is going to work because I think it's asymmetrical meme warfare right? You're, 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 the QAnon and, and, and anti-vax pandemics and global conspiracies and all these things are so compelling because they're operating at the level of mythopoetics. They're mythic tales. Mm-hmm. So it's not more or less information that's missing, right? We need to actually hop up to the level of mythopoetics and tell better ripping yarns. So that's where we were looking to you know, subvert QAnon with YAnon, mm-hmm. right? So, so Y drops, not Q drops. Like, Don't do your own research. Ask better mm-hmm. questions. You know, like why and on, like the question behind all your questions. And then can we share the Gnostic instruction manual that effectively is smuggled into this book? and can we share that as actually hey the omegans are the ones who wrote this book they incepted it via the very protocol disclosed in this book if you are reading this or participating in this or finding this trail of breadcrumbs Mm -hmm. it means it worked like in like like the Terminator with john connor right so we're the omegans are messaging us from the future to say that what we do next is essential we're the last cusp in the time space continuum before it all goes tits up and they tried to get these messages through all the way back from Enoch to John Dee, right, to Aleister Crowley, <laughs> right, to all these folks through the ages. And they kept getting intercepted or gobbled. I love it. And, and so your job, dear reader, is to decode the puzzles and clues so that A, the Archons, the Lords of Misrule, can't snag it again. And B, so that only the Worthy, like Excalibur, will, will be able to decode the whole puzzle. And here's the actual cheat codes for blowing yourself to God consciousness and showing back up as a homegrown human. <laughs> yeah, I fucking love it. That's, that's so oh. good. So good. Um... You kind of figure if you're going to launch a postmodern religion in hyperspace, <laughs> right? Like it would take the form of an alternate reality game, right? <laughs> this is not a game, Dead, Serious, Serious. You know, like this is just play. This is just fiction. And if you figure everything from blockbuster movies to like Sleep No More, to Meow Wolf, to all of these these kind of new media properties, which are kicking down the participant-observer barriers, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, and a lot of it is infused from Burning Man. There's, it's, it's impossible to decouple what's showing up in the in the entertainment and experience spaces from from that experience. But the bottom line is, is like, let's fucking get absolutely, pl- you know, playfully mm-hmm. creative with our storytelling, our participatory storytelling, and experience design. Mm.
1: Yeah, it it feels like a beautifully like tricks the move to kind of smuggle yes. in these practices like through the lens of what is resonating with with people with with where they're at.
0: Um, well, it's sort of like stochastic terrorism, right? That, that concept where like Bin Laden would get on YouTube and say, you know, the West is the, are, the, are the infidels and something should happen. And then wouldn't you know it, a homegrown suicide bomber does his thing or, or even Trump for the, you know, for the capital thing of like, you know, or even prior, like it's the Mexican druggist and rapist at our border. And then wouldn't you know it, a guy in El Paso Walmart opens fire. And then the people who say the thing and incite the thing always shrug their shoulders and go, I didn't tell him to. It just happened. It was alone lone crazy, right? So, they've, the, so the folks that have been agitating for separatist rapture ideologies have been hiding behind stochastic terrorism, right? I didn't tell you to do it, but sure enough, if I say somebody ought to, soon enough, somebody's gonna. And so instead of that, we can engage in stochastic Gnosticism. Like we didn't exactly say blow yourself to God consciousness and unlock the secrets to the universe, but we did kind of show you how.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and this this makes me think briefly of um i thought about integral theory and, and their community and how they've created some pretty interesting and comparable like an ecology of practices for waking up cleaning up growing up and showing up but it feels to me as if they almost have like a branding problem and these practices rarely escape the niche community of these you know mostly nerdy white males and so this this framing just feels so much more Exciting and fun and accessible and just
0: interesting. Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, for me, you know, and even experiencing the the integral community as well, it, it felt like there was a small subset, less than 10% of people that were kick ass and drawn to that community because they'd already had their own discipline, their own lineages, their own direct experiences. And then it just turned out that Ken Wilber was actually really good at, at mapping and modeling some of the experiences they'd already had. Mm-hmm. But then the remaining ninety percent was people who were just drawn by the, the the intellectual contact high, and the kind of the, the intoxication by linguistic proximity. And they, but they never got to anything embodied, and so it became an ascendant, undergrounded um, community of practice where people their overwhelming goal was to like let's get up and away, let's model everything in quadrants and, and infinite levels and lines and layers, and and we get increasingly divorced from the actual just here and now of being alive. So for me, the, the litmus test was like, if you, couldn't, if you couldn't share it with your granny on the front porch in her rocking chair, mm-hmm. and it didn't make obvious and intuitive sense to her, you, you probably haven't thought about it enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the, the, the Hopi grandmothers always used to have a way to kind of bust the balls of like the young warriors who were talking too much shit around the fire. And it was basically you know, like, yeah, but does it grow corn? Like, does it actually produce life? Does it sustain, right? Or is it just kind of arm waving? And Mm -hmm. and I think we're we're absolutely approaching really rapidly. I think a place where everyone's you know physics trumps metaphysics, and you could be a libertarian, free market libertarian. You could be you could be a neo Marxist. You can be a you know a, a uh, Barbara Marx, hovered evolutionary spirituality—you can know, take your pick. You can you, because you know for the last whatever twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years in the developed West, ideas have been cheap, and accountability for whether what you say it turns out to be true has been almost non-existent. I mean the number of pundits that show up on Sunday morning politics shows or financial analysts confidently predicting, you know, a rise or a fall of markets. Like they've all been terribly, drastically, consistently wrong. And they still have jobs and they still write books and all these things, right? They should have been drummed out of town on a barrel and they haven't been. And so my, my sense is that we're just going to be running increasingly into physical realities if 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 the fire is coming over the hill and i'm packing my car frantically and we're trying to find our birth certificates and our wow. family photos does it like the debate over whether this is a predictable byproduct of decades of global warming and beetle infestation and the invasion of internet species or this was just some fucking you know drunk drunk high schooler with a fucking you know with, with a loose joint in the in the woods is not going to matter right and and so that the the massively complex things or, or what's what's you know or has global neoliberalism being a net positive or net you know we're slinging back and forth quotes on you know $2 a day is rising above the poverty level or should we really have raised the limit to $10 a day because that's a more accurate it doesn't matter when you know you have 500,000 refugees kicking down your southern back you know garden gate or whatever right like we're just you know Syria and the refugees that just rolled into Italy like these are just real these are 3d Human experiences, and we've become so disembodied in the contemporary digitized West, right? We've become so disembodied from hands in the soil, head. You know, I mean, how many of us can identify three trees out? You know, you've probably seen that meme of like, here's the top, you know, here's top 10 famous logos, and here's, you know, here's 10. Uh, leaf, leafs and flowers can you identify, sure, sure. you know, can you yeah, identify yeah. them? Like, yeah. you know, how many people can't look, don't know what phase the moon is in, don't mm-hmm. know what time sunset, sunrise and sunsets are, couldn't pick out the Big Dipper and the North Star or Orion. Like, you're just like, holy shit, you know, like, there is some basic, like, human 101-ing. And it yeah. doesn't require latching onto some noble savage narrative and you know starting learning how to tan our own buckskins, although you can and it's a rich and beautiful experience. But like you don't have to do that to just be like, holy shit, we are deconditioned zoo animals. Mm-hmm. And and it's time for a bit of a recorrect. I mean you think of intermittent fasting, you think of hot and cold, you know, saunas and ice baths, you think of hyperventilation, all of these things really, that are kind of all the rage in the biohack paleo-ish space, are almost uniformly efforts Intentional or not, to get back to the kind of range and resilience that humans used to experience on a daily and weekly basis. Yeah, hundred percent. Get off our asses. Functional movement. You know, hot and cold. We didn't. We weren't designed to live in seventy-two degrees year-round. And sometimes go hungry, and sometimes feast your face off because we're not used to having a ten thousand calories in a climate-controlled box. You know, within easy reach of our fucking chair. You know, <laughs> right. So there's a sort of need, you know, need to return to kind of what McKenna would have called the neo-archaic, mm-hmm. you know, like what does it mean to make use of technology? Because fucking hell, it, it's pretty fantastic. I mean, if we had to revert back to what we could whittle or weave, you know, it's a, it's a long drop off the fucking cliff of living standards. Um, but if we can use technology, then, you know, it's back to Buckminster Fuller, right? I mean, we have we have the know-how. We just spend it on war and material consumption, instead of sustainability and equity mm-hmm. yeah it's it's like finding that simplicity on the
1: other side of complexity that i i know you've you've spoken about a few times um there's there's a couple more threads i'd, I'd love to pull on and and one is could you could you speak to me a little bit about the experience of being you called it uh, being a closeted mystic christic and i'm asking mostly because i had a a comparable childhood that included going to a you know, uptight British school where we attended weekly assemblies in the the St. Albans Abbey and what I considered at the time to be just nauseating dogma shoved down my throat. And honestly, only now having samples, a wide range of mystic traditions and experiences, I'm kind of reopening up to the idea of my own Gnostic lineage. So could you maybe speak to your own experience here of, of rediscovering your own roots in this regard?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, same experience you had. I I had absolutely wholeheartedly turned my back on the Western tradition. Um, And, but then in the experience of like the agony and the ecstasy, right? The idea of having peak experiences, feeling that, you know, love keeps no record of wrong, you know, that, that sense of like, oh, wow. Like I'm at least glimpsing for this moment, myself healed, whole, pure, you know, best self, no apology, and then getting sucked back down into the absolutely excruciating um, mind fuck and heartbreak of life as we live it down here, and going shuttling back and forth enough times from that experience, it just felt like um, it felt like the closest analog or metaphor that I had for that was the the Christic experience and not specifically like the Nazarene, although that always felt like one, you know, illustrative story, but in no way specific to anything to do with organized Christianity. It just felt like the, the analog of um, dying and being reborn. So basically death rebirth kind of practices always seemed profoundly true. So I was much more into like the ultra mythic story of like, you know, Robin Hood, and the green man and some, you know, mm-hmm. deep OG English shit and like Frazier's golden bow that this, you know, the, which has now been, you know, it's meaningfully critiqued among religious scholars, but informed mm-hmm. everybody from Robert Graves to Tom Robbins to, you know, all sorts of folks. But that idea of like the dying and re, being reborn seasonal sacrificial king, right? Like that old traffic tune, Steve Winwood, you know, John Barleycorn. the idea of like, hey, here's this, you know, this medieval fate, you know, uh, ballad of John Barleycorn literally being the Barleycorn. And then every autumn they cut him down and then they grind his body into wheat and then into beer. And then they drink, they drink and eat him, you know, in the spring and he's reborn. And that's a fucking trippy sixties, mm-hmm. you know, acid song. And you're like, mm-hmm. Whoa, you know, so that was kind of the backdoor angle. And then also, um, you know, some of the, some of the, the Grateful Dead's lyrics and, and Jerry Garcia, the guitarist for that band. I mean, those guys for, a half century were effectively the psychedelic Gnostic initiatory traveling circus. Hmm. And they went around the world, including the pyramids of Giza um, and everywhere else. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Played there on the solstice um, and had epic, epic throwdowns. But I mean, fundamentally much of their song base was about that same kind of betwixt and between rambling loner experiencing heartbreak and some form of sublime, but I'm never gonna name the thing experience. And and so for me it was always just finding my way to what were you know basically what was what were the sort of mythological pegs to hang these experiences on that felt like stories that served, stories that informed, that inspired, that supported. Mm -hmm. And and ultimately it was that notion of like, oh, that the Kairos Kronos thing, like Kairos being sacred time, which we typically, you know, is a way to describe what we experience in that timelessness or ineffability of a peak state Mm -hmm. against the Kronos, you know, of clock time and and the intersection like the Rosicrucians back in the day, like that was their initiatory description of being an initiate of the rosy cross. Like the rosy part was your heart beating there at the intersection of the two of those things, which is fucking impossible and is simultaneously the agony and the ecstasy. Right? So, you know, and so said another way, you can sort of call it the blissfuck crucifixion, right? On the one hand, there's the blissfuck part. There's like white light, like neck snapping, joy, love, light, you know, orgasm, take, fill in the blank. Like it is possible to light up a human nervous system pretty reliably right we 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 obsess on it we fetishize it most people miss them up badly but it's absolutely table stakes at this point but at the same time is that all of that expanded awareness that comes in those hypersynaptic hyperconnected expansive open receptive states is also like oh holy shit right like i weep for the world i weep for the futility and smallness of my own efforts against the Outer immensity and majesty of this entire thing—it seems, you know, whatever. All we are is dust in the fucking wind, man. I mean, like you name it, right? <laughs> like, like there are plenty of comments on on that juxtaposition. But the thing that I find powerful to the point of potentially transformative, you know, all the way to it's our last and only hope, is if we can have that experience, and it is without a doubt a, a death-rebirth initiatory experience if we can have it without flinching if we can accept that position of the agony and the ecstasy and we can bear witness to it and through it then you get to you know what gandhi called satyagraha and what mlk called soul force like then you and that's the you know that's the thing like the magic of when somebody knows they're a dead man walking and they actually step back up And they do the good, the true, or the beautiful, they do the thing they must. And they Mm -hmm. do it without any further regard for their own self-preservation. Like Mm -hmm. we need, you know, we need a billion people to be able to, and 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 predominantly it will be in the developed West. It will be people with privilege, people with power, people with access, people who can make a difference above and beyond just being another body in the street, but if it comes to that, a body in the street Mm -hmm. to say enough's enough. Like we take a stand for, for, for radical human decency, right? And, 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 but that doesn't come from a pep rally and that doesn't come from a weekend workshop, mm-hmm. right? Because, because if it does, it doesn't fucking last, right? You, you'll see when it gets really hard, you will see people who have just paid lip service to those kind of pro-social values. They'll fold, they'll duck right at the moment they're most needed, So the true death rebirth initiation is to say, okay, I I embrace being anthropos. Like I've already, you know, it's the samurai thing of meditating a thousand ways on your death, so that you meet it with acceptance on the battlefield. Which paradoxically means you're far more likely to stay alive (laughs) because you're not distracted, right? So how do we do that? How do we do that so that we can show up with love and courage? And if we do it soon enough, maybe even a bit of play. Like the longer we wait, the less the less options we have and the less fun this gets. We don't, we're definitely not getting off the hook for it at all, but we lose the chance for, for like I said, for playing at the infinite game versus Mm -hmm. just taking a stand as the ship goes down.
1: Mm. Yeah. As you're, as you're sharing that, I I'm reminded of, I I recently talked to um, a guy called Bill Plotkin on the podcast and he shared a model for um kind of an adult maturity and he basically kind of says there are two primary directions uh, one is up into unity consciousness and the other is kind of down into the underworld of the mythopoetic identity and soul and his the gist of his of his model and his work he, he's a wilderness guide um he basically guides people through this like descent to soul so that they are able to wake up to the unique contribution that only they can make with their own personal gifts and their own wounds, which I think somewhat maps onto Zack Stein's model of, of installment. And I, I really just really resonate with this in this idea of like, how do we embody that soul force and make that, uh, contribution that, that only we can make, um, whilst kind of avoiding the, the nihilism and the screaming abyss
0: and, uh, yeah, it's, it's powerful. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, let, let's talk about that because that's actually what I said yes to um, jumping on this podcast with you, right? Mm. Let's discuss the, the, the tragic model. And, yeah. and Zach, I think, has done probably the most sophisticated work on advancing that. Um, it's not his original work, but he is, he's building on it and contextualizing it in some beautiful ways. Mm. Um, because my sense is, and this kind of hopefully will be something that's accessible to anybody listening if some of the other stuff has seemed a little high level, um, which is, you know, this is just, again, this is a model, take it for what it is, Um, but my sense is is we are all born into the pre-tragic, right, and the pre-tragic means we haven't yet experienced tragedy, and that could be as early and simple as we're just suspended in the womb you know, fused with our mother and it's warm and it's heartbeats and it's nutrition and it's everything we could possibly need. And then suddenly we're forced into these contractions through this painful passage out into a cold, bright, loud world. We didn't fucking choose. We'd just as soon crawl back into the womb. I mean, that's like Freud 101, you know, right there. So it could be that our quote unquote fall from grace is literally our moment of birth, Mm. or it could be we were born into a stable, loving family We were told we were special and we were gifted, and then we go into fucking elementary school and middle school and we get the shit kicked out of us. Or we're so fortunate that we grab all the brass rings and we're valedictorians and we're full scholarship kids, and we then get the internship and then we get the job and then we get the partnership, and then it all turns to ash in our mouth. You know, some people get to delay it for decades. Other people come smack dab into this world, but at some point, the idea that. I can grow up to be president or an astronaut and I can find my Prince Charming or my Sleeping Beauty and that everything's gonna work out for me because I'm hashtag blessed, that turns to worms. And we get walloped with grief and tragedy and setback. And then we're thrust into the tragic, right? The idea that, holy shit, the deck is stacked. This is a raw deal. Who knows whether happiness is attainable? I don't know if I'll ever be able to do this or pull this off or succeed or, or be worthy of love. And many, many of us, Get stuck there, and I would say that more and more of us are going to be stuck there, and we're seeing this with the identity politics movements, right? Mm. And then, so for most of us, that will break us. It's the the old Hemingway thing of the world breaks everyone, and only some of us are stronger in the broken places. But those that doesn't break, it kills. So you're like, Jesus, okay, that's a relatively that's stiff medicine. Um, But a handful of people, and they're typically people that change the world, make it to the post tragic and those are the folks that say i i don't i haven't transcended it i haven't bypassed it i haven't solved it or fixed it but i have accepted the tragedy of this life and i'm getting back up anyway and i rise up singing now i am testifying to a truth that is tempered and softened but also deepened by by the tragedy of life and from there right is is arguably the only place to stand because you know that those people are Effectively unbeatable. They have already stared into the screaming abyss. They've already had their hearts cracked open. I mean, Alice Walker says it beautifully. She says, "My heart's been cracked open um, it, so many times. It just swings open wide now, like a suitcase." Mm-hmm. So you're like, "Okay, so that that's soul force." And if you see what's happening in our and you know and Martin Luther King, right? Like like that twentieth century up through 1968 civil rights movement coming out of the Southern Baptist tradition and coming out of you know, the, the, the African American slave experience, Reconstruction, and then into the 20th century was, I think undoubtedly, one of the most powerful post-tragic civil movements in mm-hmm. history, as was Gandhi's with, um, with British colonialism right and those came from you know as was mandela right i mean he comes out of robben island and he's like hey man forgive i'm going to forgive my oppressors we're not going to burn this down we're not going to do a zimbabwe we're going to do something different and what we're seeing today is that i and again this is hypothesis so i can easily stick my neck out and get murdered for this but my sense is is a the alt right right that the sort of the the christian nationalism and populism we're seeing in the us but also springing up around europe is in many respects a crashing of the pre-tragic like this was a country built by and for white christians and you were born on third base thinking you hit a triple and it's all designed to just plop into your lap Right. And then they're suddenly realizing, holy shit, this is a complex multicultural world. And I can't say all the bad words I used to say. And now I have to feel guilty about my implicit or explicit biases. And there's actually a bunch of people that don't look like me or talk like me or pray like me that are actually, holy shit, they're cutting in line and getting ahead of me at the same time that my logging, ranching, mining, farming, steel mill, industry, rust belt, jobs have all been collapsing. And now I feel more uncertain and unsafe than I ever have. Fuck this. Right, so that's going into the tragic of a of a post racial society and realizing I don't no one kept my place in line, and you're getting demagogues promising them a pre tragic. Let's make America great again, literally, dragging them back to 1950s mythologized America, of white people and white picket fences, which never existed, by the way, but is nonetheless a ripping story for Fox to tell, right? But on the other side, we're seeing the same thing, right? Because I think that millennials and younger millennials and Gen Z. Like there was a fracture, a well-known and well-established fracture um, in the civil rights movement and community, with RFK and MLK being assassinated in sixty-eight, the end of those summer civil rights riots around the world, and then kind of a move into both Black Power, Black Panthers, like that movement of like African nationalism, separatism, those kind of movements. Mm-hmm. And and then and then kind of an end, right? So the the 80s was this sort of fallow reagan america nothing really happened but then you've got like barack and beyonce and bling and you have the rise of like not not soul and gospel and folk and protest songs you have material consumption a black guy's president and a lot of iconic african-american you know emblems of, of outsized success so now we're singing about Maybachs, and we're singing about crystal and we're right and we're singing and, and it's a totally different ethos and that was and, and that pre-tragic was We've got a black man as president, and anybody can grow up to be that, and we're in a post-racial society. <clears throat> you then run into the tragedies of George Floyd and, and, and all of the other shootings and all of those kind of things that spawns Black Lives Matter. And you and Black Lives Matter is energetically a complete rejection of the post-tragic 60s era civil rights. It's not mm-hmm. post-tragic at all. And in fact, it's got that same intim, in, in, infantile reactivity mm-hmm. Which is, we were promised a rose garden. We're not getting a fucking rose garden. Cancel everything. Cancel everyone. And we are going to stamp and rage until we get back to the thing that we thought we we deserved and had coming to us. And I say that, you know, with love for the intentions of the movement. But the idea of we're going to defund the police, we're going to stop teaching the Western tradition, we're going to censor Dr. Seuss, it's like, who the, what did you fucking think the 1920s were like, folks? Like, what did you think the 1800s were like? Is it shocking to you that many of the founding fathers held the values of their era? Right. And just to fast forward, like fast forward 50 years and won't we just happily eating industrial agricultural meat from our supermarket and having bacon for breakfast? Will that not seem like an unconscionable abomination to like, you know, let's not be so quick mm-hmm. to to judge the past based on a fictionalized notion of safety and equity that has never existed anywhere on this planet before this. And this is as good as it's ever been, folks. hmm. And let's keep on going, like, let's keep on pushing. So it does feel like what we need more than anything right now are voices. And they, and they don't have to, and they're probably not politicians. <laughs> they're probably artists. They're probably, you know, they're, they're, they're whomever, right? But, but P, you know, I mean, and Greta Thunberg is doing, you know, she is doing in her own very unique and specific way with all sorts of critiques and counters and all the things. She's just a young person speaking soul force. It's how a 16-year-old random kid caught the world's attention. Right. And there's many, 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 many more like her. And we just need those folks to be ringing that bell, which is I have, you know, I have walked through the valley of the shadow of darkness.
1: Mm.
0: Right. But I choose love Mm. and then to, and then to fall in line and walk with them. Mm.
1: Yeah. It's, it's interesting how I think often the like through the personal lies the universal. and while you were, while you were speaking, I, I've been working as an emotional resilience researcher and running master classes on, on this kind of stuff. and I've been doing some research into the idea of post-traumatic growth and kind of what yeah. are some, of, yeah, the, some yeah. of the factors that that lead to it. Um, but it's yeah, it's,
0: it's challenging and I completely agree. I think it's it's so needed right now. Well, I mean, and that's why we talked about the need for scripture, right? Because mm-hmm. like, even if, you know, like, like AA, right, which again is I mean, a wildly problematic um, chemical dependency program, sure. but as a cultural movement, I'm, I remain fascinated by it, right? And they've got their one day at a time, they've got their scriptures, they've got their aphorisms, right? And those aphorisms is, you know, basically that you know, culture is just intergenerational learning, passed down and so we absolutely need culture of post traumatic growth we actually need culture of how do i persist when my heart's broken open and and most most songs most pop songs and anthems that we know and love there there's a whole category of redemption songs and they are the ones that people whip out their lighters for at shows, and they're the ones that people crank, you know, turn up their car radio to the max to belt out along with. Like they are the songs that's, you know, they they all have the same arc, whether they're country, whether they're hip hop, right? They they all have that same blues idiom of let me start by telling you how fucking hard it's been, and and what I have gone through. And then there is that reviving chorus. There is that anthem. And then there is that I'm a survivor. There is the I get knocked down, I get back up again. You fill in the blank on what the refrain is. But it is a testament to the human spirit because of and in spite of the suffering that I have felt. Like I am Mm -hmm. singing the blues, but motherfucker, I am singing it. Right. And so, and that, like, that's what we need. It's all, all the answers are around us. We definitely, definitely don't need a bunch of clever people, you know, on an extended wiki, like redesigning civilization from a blank page. You know, what we do need is we need people to like wake up around them, look around, look around your culture, look around your community and dust off. A lot of those things we ditched for our game boys and our Twitter feeds and, and, and revive them and connect them. Cause like your whole, the grieve globally, thrive locally, I think is actually one of the most important points. Like I'm a big fan of like us moving to global centric consciousness and, and lots of Pundity type people love to, you know, especially in the conchi scene will, will love to say, hey, the solution lies within, you know, you can't change the world until you change yourself. And everyone's like, oh, thank God, this fucking justifies my thousand dollars on this shishi retreat. Now I can actually, you know, now I don't feel so bad, right, about my bougie narcissism, right? But, but, but the reality is, that I think actually, we more than like the most practical thing we need is actually a, a regression to healthy tribalism. And the only healthy tribalism I'm aware of is bioregional. It's where you live. It's where you know where you it's what watershed are you in? It's where do you get your food? Who do you live next to? And and can we reaffirm community connection? Because, like when there are resource challenges, when there are adverse weather events, when there are Welcome or unwelcome neighbors, visitors, refugees, homeless people showing up in your neck of the woods, right? We need the capacity on Spaceship Earth, right, to be self-reliant and to be looking after each other. And so healthy place-based tribalism, we live here, we give here kind of thing, feels really important because then we don't need to solve the culture wars, right? You might personally disagree with me that all animals should have the same, that that share the same sentience as us and and should have the same civil rights. So we may or may not agree on spay and neuter programs or zoos or anything like that, but you and I might definitely agree that, you know, we wanna have a neighborhood watch or a community supported agriculture, or that the school that all of our kids go to is as strong and healthy as possible. So like, we might be diametrically opposed on national elections, we might not give a shit about what happens to other people around the world, but, but, but we can agree on our neighborhood and our school district, great, let's just start there. We do not have to be singing out of the same hymn book for a thousand pages, but fuck, if we can find one or two or 10 pages where we all know the, we all know the tune, like, let's start making music there together.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, and and just to, I guess, to bring it back to this idea of the post-tragic, um, what came up for me while you were speaking was that going through the process of grieving my the loss of my partner, like it, it in some ways felt like it kind of hollowed out more space for for love and for for connection on the other side and it's it sounds weird to say but I'm, I'm truly grateful for the process of grief and the gift that i think it's given to me and to my my ability to connect with my my family and the partnership i have with with my wife now and it's um it, it's weird to say that i think there are these beautiful gifts to be had from the grieving process like the i I think you you referenced uh kintsugi the japanese golden joinery and it, it feels like that is what has has happened to me on a kind of individual level and i think the question of how can we go through this collective breaking and then rejoining
0: is just such a such a beautiful question yeah i mean this is this is our thing right and I, and, I, and I think the like if we just are left to our own devices or social media feeds, we're all going to come up short. Um, but there is profound insight and wisdom in the world's wisdom traditions, in our uh, in our songbooks. you know, all around us. Um, and, it's, and it's key for us to seek sustenance and seek perspective. And it's the whole, you know, Isaac Newton standing on the shoulders of giants thing, which actually he poached from a 13th century French monk. So he was standing on the shoulders of (laughs) giants himself, right? But that idea of like, yeah, if if we're all just flat footed, you know, we're not going to see that far, but there are so many incredibly wise grandmothers and grandfathers, right? Our ancestors that have laid some shit down and have figured some shit out. And there's very little new under the sun. So I think, you know, as much as anything else, like, seek refuge in our in our canon seek refuge in our art in our stories mm. and and share the ones that lift us up when we need it
1: yeah absolutely so this this feels like a beautiful place to begin to to wrap up um would it be okay to ask uh, four rapid fire questions uh, your answers don't need to be rapid fire and sure. then we'll we'll close okay so first one what practice from the hedonic Eng- uh, engineering toolkit has provided you personally with the
0: most profound lasting or embodied impact I mean I think the simplest is just is is committing to intimate partner practice um, as a practice so doing it every day no matter how you feel versus only doing it romantically as a as an exclamation point on the end of a good day
1: Hmm. Nice. Yeah. I, and I love your, um, what you shared about Hiros Gamos as well. And that's maybe something for another time. Uh, question two, it's the year 2100 and humanity fucked up and drove the game a bus off a cliff. What went wrong and what was the most likely point of failure?
0: I think just, you know, business as usual and more of the same. I mean, it's the tragedy of the commons and it's, it's rent seeking behavior, the absence of a free market. I think if we had a truly free market that could actually care for and, and restore the commons, I think we'd be off to the races. So it's, it's a, it's more of fuck. I mean, it's just more of the same. And um, it is, it is, it's all the pathological elements of the Western psychosocial, technological, political experiment. <clears throat>
1: What is your most sincere hope and aspiration for this book?
0: That it touches the hearts of people that it's meant for, and that they get it, and that they go and build good, true, and beautiful things um, inspired or supported by it, and then bonus would be and they you know and they email or send a letter to 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 (laughs) share to share to share what they've done right because that that million percent makes any hard time um pushing rope uphill Mm -hmm. uh, on this end more than more than worth it
1: Mm. What,
0: what does it mean to you
1: to be a good ancestor for your son and perhaps his children's children
0: I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's hopefully a model of a life um, courageously and creatively and honestly lived to the fullest. Okay, well, um, this has
1: been this has been such a freaking pleasure. Um, there are literally pages more notes that I have in front of me, but I, I want to be respectful of your time. So, besides obviously immediately going and buying your book and inhaling it, what is the best place for
0: eager listeners to to learn more and get involved? Sure, yeah, I mean, I think the simplest is recapturetherapture.com. dot com. And that has all sorts of additional tools and models, like all the charts and infographics in the book are there in a homegrown humans toolkit with like a connecting story and they're sort of full color and full size. So way better than the black and whites in the book. Um, there's places you can check in and you know hop on our newsletters and all that kind of stuff. But really that's, that's the overwhelming place. And keep your eyes open for YAnon this summer. And if you want to, if you want to follow those breadcrumbs down into an adventure, feel free.
1: <laughs>
0: Amazing. <clears throat> and um yeah I, I wanted to add that I I kind
1: of feel so passionately about this this book I've bought 5 extra copies for the first 5 listeners who ping me to request one on on Twitter and I believe I think I saw in an email that there's a there's a book club and there's an online course as well available um yeah and, and I'll be including a bit of a glossary of terms in the show notes
0: as well as some other links uh, is there anything else anything else to add No I mean I think you know the thing that we end, we end all of our stuff with, which is stay awake, build stuff and help out.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'd love to officially close with, uh, there's a real line. And he said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually without noticing it live your way into the answer. And so with that in mind, what is the question that you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? And
0: are they different? Um, Hmm. Question. I mean, fuck man. I mean, I feel like I've asked an awful lot of questions for a really long time. Um, And at this point, there's just kind of a bittersweet resignation that, what will be will be Mm. and we're sort of going over the top of the falls (laughs) and and do we make the drop and land on our board you know or or are we in for a washing machine um i feel like we're in that bit of suspended animation and consequence right now Mm. so I i think i'm maybe i've set aside questions for a while or i've just come to the end of that thread for myself Um, But for your, for folks listening, I think the most, the simplest, most powerful and potentially only really meaningful question is what is mine and mine alone to do? And how do I begin it? Beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Great to talk.
1: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.